great to be here to be back. Last week I was in uh, uh, one of our church plants, so Redemption Church, our only church plant right now. We sent out our first church plant with our last youth pastor, Josh Tovey, to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I'll bring you greetings from those folks. Uh, God's doing a, a great work there. They've got a mission statement to connect people to Jesus for life change. If you've been around here, you know that's ours as well. And so they're really like an extension of your ministry. Um, you're a part of what they're doing, obviously through your prayers. I know many of you are praying for them, and then through your giving. Um, we give a percentage of our budget to them, too, so they can do their ministry um, just as our plant as they're getting started. And so I wanted to bring you greeting uh, back from them. And then also let you know, I'm excited to be here. It's great to be gathered, though, with your church family. It's fun as it is to go to another place and see what God's doing there. And he's doing the same type of thing. He's saving people. Um, marriages are being reconciled. He's breaking people from addictions and doing a, a great work um, there at their church. And they're going to be getting small groups started in the fall. We're doing our expo that Pastor Jason mentioned. Um, they're getting theirs just started. So if you want to pray for them, pray for that to go well as uh, people can live life together and those relationships in that way. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to continue in our series, as you saw from the video, um, called Red Letters. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 7, um, starting in verse 1, one of the most uh, quoted and uh, misapplied verses in the Bible. So we're going to look at that in just a moment. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into Matthew 7. Father, thank you uh, that we get to gather. Thank you that we get to sing praises to your name. Thank you that you are so good, and um, that you're so good that we can trust you only give good gifts, and even the stuff that we don't like and we don't want, we wouldn't pick that we know that you're going to use for your glory. And I pray you do that. I pray you take people's circumstances today and allow them to, to be pressed into their hearts as you take your word and then speak that. I pray you speak through my lips. Bring those things together in a supernatural way, in a way that only you could do that would show people you're at work in their lives. And God, I pray you speak through me and you change us. Make us different. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today's passage is uh, Don't Judge. Judge not, lest ye be judged. One of the most quoted verses in the Bible. People will quote this verse who've never even opened a Bible. They will use this verse. And then Christians will oftentimes use this verse as well. And oftentimes we misuse this verse. And so nobody wants judgment. Nobody wants to be judged. But we live in a world that's filled with judgment. So think about all the judgment that we experience. All of you who um, got dressed this morning, which I would assume is everybody. I can't see everyone from this vantage point. But you went in your closet this morning. And you picked out some clothes. When I went into my closet, I have several sweaters in my closet. I think sweaters are great. I think they look nice. I think they're comfortable. I enjoy wearing sweaters. I did not choose to wear a sweater today because it might be 100 degrees when I walk out here today. That was judgment. Some of you um, made other decisions today on your way here that were judgment-type decisions, whether they were driving decisions, whether they were which church you'd even come to. Some of you maybe are deciding what church to go to. Those are judgment decisions. Uh, some of you have seen the guy that was surfing uh, this was about three or four weeks ago, I think now. I can't remember if it was uh, South America or Australia. Did you see this guy, Matt? Uh, I think his name was Mick Fanning or Matt Fanning. I can't remember for sure. But the shark comes up on him. He has no idea at this point. Ends up hitting his rope that he's got tied to his ankle. And then comes around to the other side and knocks him. It's like he's playing with him. Knocks him off the surfboard. If you saw this on CNN or ESPN or any of the news channels, um, you saw this happen. And the guy starts to swim. I think I might have died of fear at that moment. But he starts to swim towards shore, and he doesn't uh, get all the way up there. They come and get him on jet skis and whatnot. And then I saw an interview with him this week. He actually went into the ocean a week later, which I think is crazy, and he saw a fin, a shark fin, on his way out to go surfing on a jet ski. I think it's time for early retirement. He did not choose to do that. We have different ideas of judgment. My family and I, we were able to go to the beach uh, last week, and we were in the Myrtle Beach area. I know about the shark attacks that have taken place. I know about what's been going on here in Carolina. I take that seriously. But we decided as a family we'd still go in the water. When I came back from vacation, I was in the office on Monday. I was talking to Pastor Jad. Pastor Jad's leaving for vacation after service today. He's going to the same area that I was in. And he said he had a relative actually text message him a picture 
of something that was in a wave that's at the beach that I was just at and that he is going to. Look at it there. That is not a shark. That is an alligator in the ocean in Myrtle Beach. If I had seen that picture, I may have made a different decision about going in the ocean. That is just weird. Now, my daughter will explain to me why it is that animal can actually go into the ocean. I don't need to know that. It's there, so I don't want to be with that thing. That's judgment. See, we live in a world filled with judgment. You expect judgment. You actually want judgment. So for a moment, imagine with me a world without any judgment. What if we actually took this verse and, and applied it the way that many people would like to? Don't judge me. Who are you to judge? Why are you judging? Judge not, lest you be judged. No one should judge. Imagine for a moment there's a world with no judgment, and you're a student. You're a student in college or you're a student in high school, and you write a paper and you give it to the teacher, and you never hear anything back. So you go up to the teacher and you say, um, how did I do in that paper? And the teacher says to you, who am I to judge? I can't judge. I mean, I can't judge you. I can't judge your performance. I can't judge what you did. Who am I to judge? Not unless you be judged. Jesus said so. Or you're walking through the mall and you're carrying your purse and somebody comes by and they grab your purse off your shoulder and they start running through the, towards the exit doors of the mall and you go up to a police officer and say, hey, that guy that's running right there just stole my purse. And the police officer says to you, who am I to judge? What, judge not, lest you be, I don't want to be judged, so I'm not going to judge him. I mean, he's stealing whatever, you decide, everybody picks their own thing. We don't want to live in that world. We expect judgment. I had the Republican primary debates this week. Some of you may have seen that. It's great entertainment, by the way, if you did not see that. Ten guys standing on a stage, and they all give their opinions, their judgments about how the country is doing and what they would do different if they were the president and whether everything would be better if they were the president. And then we judge them. I'm going to judge based on who do we think is worthy of our vote. And then there's political analysts that come on, and they judge them. It's kind of like sports. You watch the sports, and then the analysts come on, and whether they could do it or not, it's irrelevant. They're just there to judge. You expect coaches to judge who should be the starter. You expect referees to judge whether or not people obey the rules. You expect police to judge whether or not crime is happening or not. You expect judges to judge. In fact, it's in the name. We expect judgment everywhere. We make judgments all the time. We'll judge uh, whether or not we think lions should be killed. You know, I am Cecil. And that's totally fine. But if you talk about a baby, then people will pull out this verse. Who are you to judge? Why are you ju- It's moral. You can't judge about a moral thing. But we expect judgment in all these other areas of life. But we don't want, I don't want you to judge me unless you want to tell me I'm awesome. But if you have any critique, who are you to judge? That's how most of us feel that live in this time. And so we're looking at a verse today. It says do not judge. We're talking about the commands of Jesus throughout this series in the red letters. And we're going to look at one of those commands, this command. But it's probably one of the most misapplied verses by believers and non-believers. And so oftentimes you'll see people that are doing sin that don't want anyone to judge their sin and say, well, Jesus said don't judge. He loves everybody. It's a half-truth. Both those things are true. They're not the whole story. When you have a half-truth and you make it the whole truth, you don't have any truth. And so we take this and we do that, but then it's also used by people, oftentimes Christians even, that want to be cowards. And they don't want to deal with sin. And it's actually an act of... um, hatred towards other people. We don't acknowledge that. And so we want to say that it's love, and we call it a, a kind of a phony surface level type love, and really the reality is we don't want to confront anyone. And so we say, well, Jesus said don't judge. And then we're lazy, and we assume that's actually what God says without reading the passage and taking the time to study. That's why we're lazy, because we won't study the scriptures and see what it actually says. And so today we're going to dive into this verse and see what it actually says. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, this is a passage of scripture. If we would get it right, it would be revolutionary for the church. and could be revolutionary for you personally. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me. Matthew chapter 7, 
in verse 1. If you don't have a copy of the scripture, we give them away for free. We put them over here by the offering box. That's not like a, hey, you've got to give a donation. The Bibles are actually free. Go ahead and grab one. Um, they're over there if you don't have one. Um, when we get to a building and uh, we've got better lighting, we probably won't put all the verses up on the screen, so we want to get used to using your Bible if you don't have a Bible. Um, but otherwise, today they'll be on the screen. But Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, the context for what's happening here, because context is always key, and it's huge in this passage. And I've said it for the nine years that I've been teaching at this church. Almost every message I've said, I said, context. Got to look at the context. The context for what's happening, Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1, is the Sermon on the Mount, which starts in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Jesus begins to preach a sermon. His disciples come in, they start listening. And one of the things he's preaching against are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious leaders of the day. And the problem for the Pharisees is they're very self-righteous and they're very hypocritical. And so Jesus is confronting their self-righteous, hypocritical teachings. And so between chapter 5, verse 22, and 7, 1, six times you hear Jesus say, you've heard it said, and he quotes a verse. He says, but I say to you, he's saying, let me tell you God's intent behind it. You've heard the self-righteous, hypocritical teachers teach this verse. Let me tell you God's intention behind the verse. And then chapter 6, he starts to confront their hypocritical deeds. And so it's not just what you've heard them teach. You've seen how they live. And he, he confronts their hypocrisy in giving. He confronts their hypocrisy in praying. He confronts their hypocrisy in fasting. And here he's confronting the hypocrisy in judging. They're not even good at judging because they judge Jesus to be inadequate. That's the context for what Jesus is saying. And he says this. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. In the New International Version, do not judge. King James, judge not. Or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. Kind of you reap what you sow concept that's happening there. Those who give mercy will be given mercy. Those who are condemning, give condemnation. The measure you use will be measured to you. Now, we're all going to be judged. It's not saying, hey, if you just don't judge anyone, no one will judge you. We're all gonna, there's a judgment day the scripture teaches about. It's not what this passage is about. But believers and non-believers are all going to face judgment one day. It's going to be different for non-believers than it is for believers. Believers are going to be judged. They're going to come before God. And all the junk that we've done, all the stupid stuff, it's going to be, see, that's why you needed the blood of Christ. And it's going to glorify Christ. All the things we did by faith, we're going to be rewarded for. Non-believers, it's all bad. You will be judged. You judge without mercy, it shows you don't truly understand grace. And then it says in verse 3, Jesus, from his background as a carpenter, gives this analogy. Why, he starts with the question, he gives another question in a second, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Verse 4, another question, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? Now a statement, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So you are supposed to remove the speck from your brother's eye, but there's something else to do first. Then verse 6, do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet, and then turn and tear you to pieces. And so Jesus is clearly here in this passage condemning, forbidding judgment, but not all judgment. Jesus is commanding us not to be judgmental, not that we should never use judgment. He's condemning judgmentalism, not all judgment, because some judgment is good. For example, I'm a terrible singer. I will admit it. I totally know it. I acknowledge it. Um, when I stand up here in the front, I've got a microphone on my face. I realize that. It just shows my trust and love for the tech team to mute that microphone. I remember 
when I was a youth pastor, first church I served in out of college, I was a youth pastor at this church, um, pretty traditional church, and at the end of every service, the pastor would give an invitation, or if you wanted to trust Christ as your Savior, uh, if you had a prayer request, a burden, something like that, you come down and come forward, and they'd ask all the pastors to come up at the front to receive people. And during the invitation time, they would sing a song. And so I'd come up there, and I'd stand, and I'd face the congregation, you know, the words are back behind me, and we'd sing the song. If I knew the song, I'd start singing it. I remember after one service, a guy from the tech team, who was actually up in a booth at this church, came down to me. He said, Scott, do you like to sing? (laughs) I said, yes, I do. He said, do you think you're a good singer? I said, no, I do not. He said, we don't either, up in the booth. (laughs) And then he said, but during the invitation, you're standing pretty close to the microphone. Could you just start mouthing the words? (laughs) I could have said at that moment, Don't judge me. Who are you to judge? I mean, you're up in the booth. It's not like you're up here on the stage leading the song. Come on now. But it was a good judgment. There'd have probably been nothing worse for the body at that moment than me quenching the spirit with my howling out of tune, come just as you are, or whatever song that we were singing at that moment. That was a good judgment. And Jesus isn't forbidding that kind of judgment, even though he was was talking about my performance. He was talking about me. That was wise. And so I began to mouth the words at that church uh, during the invitation time. But Jesus does forbid a certain kind of judgment. So what kind of judgment is he forbidding? He's forbidding context. Context is key. Always the context. Context, context, context. He's forbidding self-righteous, hypocritical judgment. So you're commanded to judge in other places in Scripture, but you must not be a self-righteous judge. That's our first point today. You must not be a self-righteous, hypocritical judge, the kind that Jesus is forbidding here in this passage. And that's what he's forbidding in this passage, that kind of judgment. Now, people will take this verse and only look at the first three words, do not judge, or judge not, two words if you're King James. And they'll say, you can't judge anything. Well, that's not true. Well, Jesus, he, he said, don't judge, which is true. And he was with sinners and tax collectors, and he loved all people. Those are all true things. Ripped out of their context, what you end up doing is misapplying this and using it in all kinds of ways to condone sin or to try and put a stiff arm on everybody so they can't actually talk to you about what's going on in your life. And that's not what Jesus intended. Jesus confronted sin. In fact, do you remember the first message in the Red Letter series? It was in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. The first sermon that Jesus preaches in the first book in the New Testament, Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, his first word, repent. He's dealing with sin. John the Baptist preached that message. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, you'll see Peter preached that message. Paul preached that message. Luke mentions that message. John mentions that message. Jude, every author of the New Testament, judges. And what Jesus does, he actually in other places commands us to judge. In fact, commands us to judge sin in other people's lives. I'm going to take you through a few different passages just to show you. I'm not making that up. I don't want you just to accept it. In fact, you should judge this teaching today. You should evaluate like a Berean in the book of Acts. Is what he's saying true? Does the Bible actually teach what anyone's, not just today, but anytime you hear a sermon preached? You're commanded to do that in the scriptures. But what Jesus does, he actually tells us to confront sin and deal with it in other people's lives. In Matthew chapter 18, we'll put verse 15 up on the screen. Matthew chapter 18, to give you the context of that verse, it's actually the cornerstone passage on church discipline. That's when you kick someone out of the church because they're a member of the church. They've said that they want to be a faithful follower of Christ, and they're not dealing with sin in their lives. In fact, they're continuing on in sin. But the first step is for you as an individual to go to that brother, which is key language, you'll see it also in our Matthew 7 passage, if your brother has a speck of sawdust in his eye. But in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, it says, if your brother sins against you, who are you to judge? It's not what it says. If your brother sins against you, 
just pray for him. Not what it says. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. So you have to judge. Just between the two of you, if he listens to you, you've won your brother over. You're actually doing him a service. So you're supposed to judge your brother's sins and confront them in those when they sin against you? Yep. What else? Well, First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, uh, makes a pretty broad statement here. Test everything. You should continually be judging. Continually be judging teaching. Continually be judging circumstances. Continually be judging the world around us. Continually be judging your own heart. Continue to ask yourself, search yourself. Are you of the faith? Continue to be testing everything. Hold on to the good. Reject the bad is the implied statement. Why would you do that? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, Paul tells us this. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Wouldn't have been great if Adam and Eve were a little bit more judgmental. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this. Watch out for those dogs. Paul's talking trash here. He's not talking about your cute cub. We got a dog in our house. His name's Noble. He's like a living teddy bear. He's awesome. That's not the kind of dog. They would never say bad things about Noble. That's not what they're saying here in this passage. Paul's talking trash. He's talking about a scavenger, a digging in the garbage dog. They were unclean. They would eat garbage. They would tear people apart in the streets. Watch out for those. How could Paul talk like that without judging? And he's talking about people that will lead you astray. Those men who do evil. Those mutilators of the flesh. In the context, he's talking about people that are adding to the gospel. They're telling you if you're really going to be a good Christian, you've got to be circumcised. If you're really going to be a good Christian, you've got to obey the oral traditions that we have. And Paul says, watch out for them. You've got to judge. Jesus himself says in John chapter 7, verse 24, stop judging by mere appearances. He's talking to the Pharisees in the context here because they're judging him because he's done a miracle on the Sabbath, which is a continual tension that they have. You don't obey our rules. And Jesus says, and make a right judgment. So your problem is you're not even good at it. That's what he's saying. They're judging Jesus to be inadequate. He's saying, you go to the scriptures... Aren't I the guy that fulfills everything that's said in the scriptures? If you judge this according to the scriptures, not your outward standards, not the things you're looking at, so you can make yourself look righteous, then you'd find me to be someone you should be following. Stop making these judgments on my appearance and judge right. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul applies Matthew chapter 18 to a circumstance in the church where there needs to be church discipline. It's a guy that's involved in sexual sin. Sexual sin is different than other sin. We see that taught throughout the scriptures. And this guy, what he's doing is he's shacking up with a woman, we don't know who she is for sure, but it's his dad's wife. So we don't know if it's his mom, Jerry Springer. We don't know if it's his stepmom, still really weird. There's something going on here that's really bad. And the church and Corinth, it's like they're using the verse the way that we would use this verse today. You can't judge. No one judge. Who am I to judge? We'll just love them and hopefully it all works out. Plus, you know, they'll be nice together if it works out for them. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 3. Even though I'm not physically present... I'm with you in spirit. I've already passed judgment on the one who did this. So Paul's saying, I'm judging him. He's not just telling them to judge. He's leading by example. What he's going to tell them to do is as a church, it's your job to judge the members of the church. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, hand this man over to Satan. Kick him out of the church, is what he's saying. So that, here's why, the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. The reason's not because you're better than him. You can't come here because you do stuff we don't do. That's not the point. The point is, he's headed to hell, and if you keep pretending like everything's okay, it's like you know, it's like if you are a doctor, I read this analogy today, uh, or this week. So if you, you're a doctor and you know someone has cancer, and you don't want to tell them that they have cancer because you know they're not going to like the answer, that's not called love, that's called malpractice. So you tell this guy, 
about his sin so that he hopefully he'll be saved. Let him know that he's separated from God. Let him know that he's headed for hell. And then verses 9 through 13, he tells us how to deal with people. He says, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Wait a minute. How could we deal with anyone? And then he clarifies, verse 10. Not at all meaning the people of this world. Of course you should be hanging out with people that are sexually immoral. Of course you should be hanging out with people that are greedy. Of course you should be with swindlers and idolaters. The very example of Jesus Christ shows you you should do this. In that case, you'd have to leave this world if I told you you couldn't hang out with any of those people. Then he says this, but now I'm writing you, you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother. That's key. Claims to be a follower of Christ, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such a man, don't even eat. Social ostracism. Don't pretend like things are okay when they're not. Verse 12. What business is of mine to judge those outside the church, Paul says. Are you not to judge those inside? The implied answer is yes. Let God deal with the people outside the church. You are to judge those inside the church, Paul's saying. This has huge implications for interpreting John, or Matthew chapter 7 here. If you just take those first three words, go back to our passage. If you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge. Well, then we could never do what he tells us to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We couldn't do what Jesus tells us to do in John chapter 7. We couldn't do what Jesus tells us to do in Matthew chapter 18. Couldn't do what Paul says to do in 1 Thessalonians. It's all throughout the Bible. But if you look even right here closely at Matthew chapter 7, the next time someone misuses this verse, read the whole context of this verse. Verse 5. You've got to deal with the plank in somebody's eye. After you deal with the plank in your eye, you've got to deal with the sawdust. I'm sorry, not plank, but sawdust in somebody's eye. You're supposed to deal with it. You, hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye. That's how you deal with it. And then you can see clearly, so you are supposed to remove the speck. Remove the speck from your brother's eye. Verse 6. Jesus says, do not give to dogs. Who are the dogs? Jesus is calling people dogs. What is sacred? Do not throw your pearls to pigs. Who are the pigs? You have to judge in order to know that. If you read a little bit further, you get to verse 16. And verse 16 says, uh, by their fruit you will recognize them. How do you know their fruit's good or not unless you judge? You have to judge to obey the commands of Jesus. He's not forbidding all judgment. Let that sink in. He's forbidding a certain kind of judgment. Self-righteous, hypocritical judgment. So what is that? Context, context, context. Chapter 6, verse 2, he calls some people hypocrites. In verse 5, he calls people hypocrites. In verse 16, he calls people hypocrites. If you have your Bibles, you can go back and look at those things. He calls people hypocrites for the way that they give. They give, it's not out of generosity of their heart, so that other people will see them giving and think well of them. He calls them hypocrites. In the next one, verse 5, for prayer. It's not wrong to pray. He commands us to pray always. But he's condemning their prayer because they're praying so that people will see them pray and think well of them. They're hypocrites. In fact, verse 16, he condemns their fasting. He assumes that we'll fast as believers. It's a spiritual discipline. But he says, when you fast, you're doing it so that you can be seen by people and that people will think well of you. The hypocrisy is doing something for the sake of other people thinking good things about you. And he's saying, don't judge in that way. That's hypocritical, self-righteous judgment. And we do that. Think about it with my kids. My kids, uh, I've got four little girls. They're great kids. I don't know for sure what their motives are, but I'm pretty confident that they're not always thinking about the well-being of their sisters when they tell me about the bad things their sisters do. And so they'll say, for instance, hey, my sister wrote on the wall with permanent marker. Uh, My sister didn't clean a room. My sister made a mess in the kitchen. My sister didn't eat her vegetables. I don't know, okay? I don't know every time what their intentions are. 
I know them pretty well. I'm pretty confident that usually they're not thinking to themselves, I really want my sister to get that broccoli into her system because it'll make her a stronger person. And she's not eating it. So I'm telling dad. I don't think that's usually, I think it's usually, they didn't eat their vegetables, but I did. Did you see, did you see me? You see that? Huh? Me and them? It's different. See, they're bad. I'm good. The problem is we don't grow out of that. That's oftentimes how we judge people. And so what Jesus does is he uses this ridiculous analogy. It's sarcasm. I love that Jesus teaches with sarcasm. It makes me feel better about me. <laughs> Verses 3 through 5, he gives this analogy from his carpenter days. And he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Now, the plank would be a beam that would support a house in this time. The size of this plank would probably be about 40 feet long by about 5 feet wide. The sawdust, obviously, is small. How can you say to your brother, how is this even possible? Can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank 40 foot long by 5 foot wide in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. So the plank here would be physically blinding, 5 feet wide. I'm going to guess most people's heads are not 5 feet around. That's huge. If you have a plank in your eye, you can't even see anything else. It's not even possible physically for you to see someone else's problem. So it reminds me, I went swimming this week. I decided to change up uh, the way that I was working out and decided to go get in the pool at the YMCA where I work out at. And um, I don't know how to swim really. Um, I mean, I, told the, I walked up to the instructor when I got there and I said, uh, I don't really know how to swim. If you threw me out of a boat, I could probably make it to shore. But I don't know how to like swim competitively because I could see all the other people around there. They were legit swimmers. They had the swim caps on. They had goggles. They had like super tight swimsuits on. I came in carrying my towel and some board shorts with flowers all over them. So I'm like looking like I'm going to the beach. And I show up. I don't have goggles. I don't have a swim cap. And uh, she said, jump in the pool and I'll tell you about your stroke after you do a little bit. And so I swam for a little bit. She gave me some critiques on my stroke. About halfway through the lesson, I looked up at her and she said, your eyes are really red. You should probably get some goggles. To which I interpreted, next time I come swimming, I should bring goggles. And I continued to swim. I swam the rest of the time. I didn't want to swim all crooked, so I'm opening my eyes. And if you've ever been in a public pool, they put a ton of chlorine in there. And so by the end of the swim lesson, everything looked to me like me right now staring into these headlights that are shooting at me. There's just big blur. I couldn't really make stuff out. kind of fuzzy, but it didn't hurt. I got out of the pool, talked to a couple people. My eyes were super red. And I uh, got ready in the locker room, went out to the car. And my eyes were starting to hurt. They, they were like, it was like they felt dry, but they were watering. It wasn't good. Um, they weren't burning, so it wasn't real bad. I could keep them open. But I knew if I saw headlights, it was nighttime, that I would have a problem. So I started looking in my car for sunglasses. I couldn't find my sunglasses, but my daughter, who's nine years old, left hers in the car, so I put those on. I thought it was pretty cool wearing my sunglasses. I thought if I drove past somebody, they'd think, oh, well, that guy's an idiot. But whatever. Uh, I drive home. Uh, I posted on Facebook that I ended up doing this. Somebody wrote me and said it wasn't the chlorine in the water. It was the pee. I hope that they're wrong. Um, I got in the house. By then, my eyes were actually starting to hurt to where I like, had to hold one eye closed in order to see out of the other one. My wife's a nurse. I said to her, do we have any Visine? I figured if that was a bad idea, she would tell me. She said, well, we've got Visine, but it's for allergies and stuff. I said, who cares? It gets the red out. Give me the Visine. I put it in my eye. It started to burn, which I thought meant it was working for about 10 seconds. And then I thought I had acid in my eye. I felt like my face was melting at that moment. I went over to the sink. I started to irrigate my face really quick. If my wife had said to me at that moment, hey, Scott, I have an eyelash in my eye. I don't think I'd have been like, let me see your little eyelash. I wouldn't care. 
At that moment, I felt like I was in the most pain of anyone in the universe. No one could possibly be hurting more than me at this moment. There's no way I was going to see her problem. It's physically impossible. She asked me later that night when I was recovering at that point. Uh, she's a very compassionate woman, but she said, do you want to watch a show together? I said, I can listen to it. Like I was... <laughs> I couldn't see... If you have a 40-foot plank that's five feet around in your face, you can't see sawdust. Physically, it's impossible. Spiritually, we do this all the time. We've got sin to deal with, and rather than dealing with our sin, we see someone else's. Classic example of this in the Bible is in 2 Samuel chapter 12, which you can read on your own later, but what's happening is in the life of David. David is a king. He's a man for God's own heart. He loves God. But he's at a low point spiritually. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, he slumped with a woman who's not his wife, even though he's got a lot of women in his life. But he takes another woman and sleeps with her. Her name is Bathsheba. It's Uriah's wife. And uh, David is the king. And so he calls Uriah back. He's got power to try and cover up his sin. And so he tries to have Uriah go sleep with his wife. But he's a noble man. He won't do it during war. And so he doesn't sleep with Bathsheba. Now David's got to come up with another scenario. And so he ends up having Uriah set up in a situation where he knows he'll die in battle. He murders him. Not with his own hands, but he has him murdered. He's covering it up. About nine months later, Second Samuel chapter 12, David has a friend come to him. His name's Nathan. He's a prophet. He says, I want to tell you a story, David. Oh, cool. I like hearing stories. So there's two men. There's a rich man and there's a poor man. The rich man has all kinds of cattle and all kinds of sheep, lots of herds. And the poor man only has one little ewe lamb. And he feeds it and he cares for it and he lets it fall asleep in his arms. He sings songs to it. He loves it. Treats it like a daughter, the Bible says. And one day, the rich man has a house guest. And the house guest comes, and it's customs, you'd feed him a meal. He doesn't want to kill one of his own sheep, the rich guy. And so he goes and he takes the ewe lamb from down the street, and he slaughters it and feeds it to his guests, and says that David burned with anger. And said, so that man should die. He should pay four times what he has stolen. And then Nathan, metaphorically, walks up to David, takes the plank out of his eye, and says, you're the man. You're the guy in the story. How can David be so irate about this guy's sin in this hypothetical situation and not see his own stuff? And I wonder, as Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount here, how many people listen to Jesus preach this message and think, I'm glad I don't have a plank. And that's exactly who he's talking to. You see, context tells us what kind of, what is the plank? The plank is not... Probably adultery. It's not probably stealing. It's not, usually when we think of hypocrisy, we think of the pastor who stands up and rails against gays and then seeing male prostitutes on the weekend, which has happened. That is hypocrisy. Or we think of the guy who speaks against human trafficking but then uses porn, which, by the way, funds human trafficking, for those of you who are using it, just so you know what's happening. That's not the kind of hypocrisy Jesus is talking about here. What's the context? Self-righteousness. The problem for the self-righteous person is they think they don't have a plank because they go, man, I'm always at church. I'm at church all the time. I serve, I do good things, I even tithe. And so they become blinded to their sin, which is, the, the problem is, they go to church all the time, they do all this good stuff, and they tithe, and, and so therefore they don't see that they're valued. They're like the person in the story in Luke chapter 18 that goes before God and starts to pray and says, God, I'm so thankful I'm not like that other person. And the other guy who's a tax collector can't even look up to God, and God says they both went away. One went away justified, and it wasn't the first guy. 
or, or like the older brother in the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15, where there's the prodigal son. We know his story. Like he went out and he's wasting all of his dad's money on women and partying and all that stuff. And he comes back and they throw a party for him. And his older brother says, well, where's my party? I've been here being faithful this whole time. And the point of the story is actually about the older brother and whether we are the older brother. And most of us, as much as we love that Jesus spent time with sinners, if we were to insert ourselves into the New Testament, we would identify more with the Pharisees and the religious people than we would with the sinners. And that's who Jesus is speaking to. And I wonder how many Pharisees sat there and thought, well, I'm glad I don't have a plank. I'm not stealing any money. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not doing those things. I didn't kill any babies. And so we sit here as Mr. and Mrs. Plank Eye thinking, I sure wish so-and-so would hear this sermon. Oh, my spouse had to miss today. That's too bad. I'm going to get her a CD. (laughs) That could be the very sign that you are Mr. Plank Eye or Mrs. Plank Eye. And so what do you do? What says here in the passage, you've got to deal with the plank in your eye. And what does that mean? It means doing what David did. If you read that story, the great thing about David in that passage, even though he blew it, because we all do, it's a man after God's own heart, right? And so when he responds, he responds right. There's only one right response. It's repentance. Read Second Samuel 12. You don't see him doing what we oftentimes do in our time. Where don't judge. No one can judge. And I'm not going to take blame, and I'm not going to take responsibility. So what, what, David does not get up and say, well, you don't understand, Nathan, what it's like to be king. You don't understand all the pressure I'm under. Justifies his sin not what David does. David doesn't say, you don't know what it was like to be me and growing up and I wasn't shown real love and so I'm just trying to find love in these bad places because part of my, it's my parents' fault. He doesn't do that. David doesn't say, uh, she shouldn't have been out there where I could see her. Like it's Bathsheba's fault that he was lusting after her. David takes responsibility for his sin. He falls on his face and he repents. And I love the question that Jesus asks in this passage. Many of us don't have a Nathan that come up and confront us. But Jesus speaks to us through these red letters in the Bible. Look at verse 3. It's a question we easily read over. Why do you look at the speck? The question's why. The second question is a how question. The first question is why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? That's the question. And pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. Dwight Pentecost, a Bible scholar, points out an interesting fact about this passage. That both items are made of the same substance. Both items are made of the same material. Sawdust and a plank. The only difference is size. Why is it that you notice someone else's pride? Is it because of the pride in your own life? Why is it that you notice someone else's anger? Why is it that you notice someone else's jealousy? Why is it that you notice someone else's self-righteousness? Is it that maybe God places that person in your life to point out what's going on in your life? Maybe you are Mr. Plank Eye, Mrs. Plank Eye. And maybe you need to repent. What does it mean to repent? Well, repent doesn't mean you feel bad about something. And you tell God, I'm sorry. That's not repentance. And somebody come up to, we're going to take communion later today. And somebody come to me after the first service and say, well, what, what are the things that you're not allowed to take communion for? And what if you're sleeping around? And what if you're doing these bad things? And I said, forgiveness is immediate. When you repent, you're ready then. 
when you repent. Repent is you, it's not playing games. God, I know I shouldn't be doing this. I plan to still keep doing it, but I know I shouldn't, so I'm sorry. Let me play, please take communion. No, repentance is I'm going to stop, and I'm turning to you, and at that moment, you're reconciled to God. Repentance is when God places his finger on your heart about the thing that you feel guilty about, and the Spirit's poking you, the Spirit's doing what Nathan said, you're the man, that's when you turn to him. And when you do that, when the plank's removed, then you're ready to judge. Because you judge with a compassion, not a condemnation. So you must not judge with hypocrisy to make yourself look good. You must not judge with self-righteousness, still having a plank in your own eye. But you are to judge. Jesus makes that clear, even in this very passage in verse 6 and in verse 5. And so the second point today is that you must judge with compassion, not condemnation. It's only God's role to judge with condemnation, and there will be people that are condemned. That's only God's role. We don't know the secrets of the heart. We don't know the motives. We, we are not in a position to do that. God is the all-knowing, righteous, and glorious judge who knows who to, put, who to put where. But we judge with compassion because we've been forgiven. He's speaking to believers. He's talking about believers, talking about other believers' sins, brothers. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? He's talking about people that have been forgiven. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? But then verse 5, notice the eye procedure. The order of events is key. It says you hypocrite because you've been doing it this way. Here's what you do. Here's the solution. First, that's a key word. So if you write in your Bible, you might underline that. First, take the plank out of your own eye. And then, second part of the procedure, you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So you're supposed to move the, remove the speck. You don't just let your brother continue on in sin. That leads to death. It's separation from God. Don't do that. But the way you deal with it is by dealing with your plank first. Once the plank's removed, guess what happens? You're a transformed person. Now you can deal with other people's sins, which is something we're commanded to do in the Bible. Shared with you some other verses earlier. James chapter 5 and verse 20 talks about this and what a loving act it is to deal with someone's sins. So remember this whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. In Galatians chapter 6, we see what a gentle procedure this is dealing with someone else's sins. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, it says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, had the plank removed, restore him gently. We oftentimes read over that because we come with judgmentalism based on pride. What judgmentalism reveals is pride. The gentleness reveals a humility. Hey, I'm coming to you as someone who's been forgiven. I know where, I know where you're at. And I know where you're headed. I don't want you doing that for your sake. Not, it doesn't have anything to do with me. Gently. But watch yourself. This is an important procedure. Or you also may be tempted. Tempted to do their sin. Tempted to pride. Tempted to self-righteousness. Be careful. But once the plank's removed, now you're ready because now you should be transformed into a person of compassion. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament, I've told it oftentimes in the history of our church, Luke chapter 7, there's a woman who comes in, she's got a terrible reputation, lots of sin in her life. And she comes in while two religious guys, Jesus and a Pharisee, are having a dinner. And she comes in, she starts to wash Jesus' feet. And the guy who's the host thinks to himself, Jesus, if he knew who she was, I wouldn't even let this woman touch his feet. Jesus reads this guy's mind, that'll mess you up. Says, you've thought to yourself, I did, I did. whoa, if I'm Simon, I'm thinking, what's happening here? And then Jesus tells a story about forgiveness, and he turns to the woman, tells her she's forgiven, tells her that she loves much because she's been forgiven much. The point of the story is for Simon, who's, who thinks he's been forgiven little, 
The reality is, the forgiveness has been offered to him and he hasn't received any of it. But can you imagine this woman who's been told she's been forgiven much if the next part of Luke chapter 7, which you don't know what happens to her after that, but if the next part of Luke had told us that she went out and then she wouldn't forgive other people, what would you think? Like, how is it even possible? Well, Jesus tells a story like that. It's a made-up story, as if no one could ever actually do this. In Matthew chapter 18, he's teaching Peter a lesson about forgiveness. That you should forgive unlimited because you've been forgiven so much. And so he tells the story about a guy who owes a bunch of money to the king. It's 10,000 talents. Uh, talent is a huge amount of money. Um, to put in perspective, Herod made about 900 talents a year. And Herod was loaded and this guy owed the king 10,000 talents. Let me put today's terms on it. He owed the national debt, which keeps going up, like a million dollars as I sit here and talk, right? He owed that much as an individual. You could never repay that. He goes before the king, and the king wants him to pay the money back. He says, sell the guy's family, sell his kids, sell him, throw him in jail until he can pay back. He'll never be able to pay back is the point of what's happening in Jesus' story. The guy starts to beg, just give me some more time, I'll pay you back. You could never do it. It's ridiculous, even the request, and the king says, you're forgiven. It's significant what doesn't happen next. He doesn't cry out in gratitude. He doesn't say thank you. He's not weeping and overwhelming, overwhelmed the grace he's just received. Instead, he leaves. He goes out into the street. He bumps into a guy who owes him 100 denarii, which would be 100 days' wages. A lot of money. Nothing compared to 10,000 talents. He grabs the guy by the throat, has him thrown in jail. Matthew chapter 18 says how people responded when they saw this guy do this. It says, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. They went and told their master, that king, everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt, 10,000 talents of yours. You begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed, which would be never. This is how your heavenly Father will treat you. This is red, red letters, by the way. Jesus speaking. This is how your heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Now, we're not teaching this passage, but I'll just tell you, the point of this passage is not you earn your forgiveness by forgiving other people. The point of the passage is if you truly grasp the forgiveness that you've received, you will be forgiving. And so if you don't forgive other people, that signs not that you need to do better to earn your forgiveness, but you haven't grasped what's been given to you. Maybe you haven't received it. When that plank's been taken away, guess what you've received? Forgiveness. And so guess how you see things now differently? Not from a seat of condemnation. Not from a seat of self. You're a forgiven sinner. You should be broken. You've been given much grace. You've been given much forgiveness. You should have much love. What's the same? Verse 2 says, In the same measure that you want to be judged, that's how you judge others. Incredible grace has been given to you. How do you want to be judged? And it's after that that you're then equipped to judge with compassion, not condemnation. It's like David. David writes a psalm, Psalm 51, that discloses his repentance with this, after his sin with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet confronts him. It says that in verse 1 of Psalm 51. In Psalm 51 and verse 10, you hear him crying out to God. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then verse 12, he says this, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Verse 13, then, key word, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. You've got to do the work in my life first and then I'll turn to you. What happens with Peter? Peter's told after he denies Jesus three times, do you love me, feed my sheep? He doesn't not told to do this until after he's broken and after he's restored from his own moral failure. 
until after he repents. What about you? You need to repent? Some of us need to repent of our judgmentalism. Some of us need to repent. We've been taking this verse and using it as a coward to condone people's sins and we're sending them to hell. Some of us need to repent because of the secrets of our hearts. Only God knows the secrets of our hearts. Some of us need to repent because we've been judging people's motives. You can't judge motives. Only God can judge motives. You can judge behavior. You don't know why the behavior exists. And so if you've been judging the behavior, guess what? Or be judging the motives, not just the behavior. Guess what you've been doing? You've been putting yourself in the place of God, saying, God, you're not a good judge. I'm a better judge. Let me tell you how this is going. I am all-knowing. It's pride. Judgmentalism reveals pride. Many of us need to repent of pride. Some of you need to repent because you think you don't need to repent. <laughs> That's called self-righteousness. We all have sin. And so what we're going to do as we conclude the service today is we're going to spend some time in repentance. I want you to be able to talk to the Lord however you need to talk to the Lord. Some of you need to repent of sin and turn to Jesus Christ as your Savior and ask Him to be your Savior today. You can do that at any moment. You don't work up salvation. Jesus says that He promises it to us. He, he came to seek and save that which was lost. And He sends us, just as the Father sent Him, to tell other people about this. So let me tell you about this. Jesus, or God, Paul says in Romans chapter 10, any who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe in your heart that God... Raise Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe that he died on the cross for your sins, was put in the grave, then rose from the dead, you'll be saved. Just call upon him for salvation because you realize your needs. So you're repenting, you're stopping going your own way, and you're turning to Jesus Christ. That's your repentance. For the rest of you believers, you may need to repent. Some of you might need to go reconcile relationship with other believers. And I recommend you do that before. We're going to take communion here in a moment, but right now we're going to spend some time in repentance. And so I'll begin this on a prayer, and you can continue to talk to the Lord. Father, we come before you this morning. Humbled that you, a gracious and mighty king, who's holy and righteous, would want us. Even though we're sinful, we're your enemies. We're fighting against you. We'd be doing things to harm you. We would kill your son, but you'd send your son and give your son for us. We repent. We repent of our pride. We repent of our judgmentalism. We repent of our self-righteousness. We repent of being lazy with the scriptures, that we would just take verses and use them to make our lives as easy as possible. And not do things that require faith. We repent of thinking that we can work up our own salvation. We repent of thinking that we can repent enough to clean ourselves up. We know it's all a work of your spirit. And we trust you. And we turn to you. And we ask you to cleanse us. We ask you to make us righteous. We know that you promise that you are faithful and just. If we confess our sins, that you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Please do that. And I'll let you continue just to talk to the Lord. And then we'll have some time and communion together.